Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I take a look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And today, I will be taking a deeper look into the works of the turn of the century African-American writer Charles W. Chestnut with his short story collection, The Wife of His Youth. If you'd like to know a little bit about Charles Chestnut's background, you can listen to my previous episode where I examine his short story collection, which uh, there's a series of interconnected short stories in that one, but that, that book's called The Conjure Woman, and that's a really fun read. It's a really nice read, and I had an episode on that, and this is kind of leading up to it. In fact, these two collections were published in the same year. They were both published in 1899, and really it was kind of Chestnut's breakout year. He had been publishing these stories in magazines and other publications prior to this, you know, as early as the, the mid-1880s, he'd been writing these things, but they kind of come together and as he kind of breaks out with the publication of these two works. Now, The Conjure Woman are a collection of connected stories all about a, a white farmer who buys some land in the South and hires this former slave named Julius. And then it's really about Julius's stories about time, the time in slavery. And The Wife of His Youth are stories that are not really as, as well connected. Now, they're all thematically tied together, though. They're all about the color line. In, in a way, he really his early career seemed to be broken up into these two halves. The Wife of the Youth, are, they're, I think every story here is in some way or another about the color line or especially in the year, time after slavery. Some are set in the period before the Civil War, but not many. Usually they're dealing with African-Americans coming to terms with the historical legacy of slavery. In that sense, it's very much like The Conjure Woman, but The Conjure Woman doesn't deal as much with the color line. It's really more about the brutality of slavery and black culture as it emerged in in the years of, of servitude. And I would say that Chestnut really has a very political point he's making here, and it's an even stronger political point than anything he makes in The Conjure Woman. And that really is... is it comes down to Chestnut challenging the hard boundaries of race and class that shape post-war America. And he's especially interested in how among black people, color and class were really interconnected. In fact, that's how the this collection of stories begins with a story called The Wife of His Youth, which is all about really how class and, and color interfuse in very complex ways. Yet, yet how you have this common experience of slavery in the background of, of this kind of overpowering these distinctions being made after the Civil War. So what we learn in these stories is simply that the color line is many times ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. There's no clear boundary. The blood is too mixed. The experiences are too mixed. Even if you're not talking about literal blood mixing, the experience, the families, the connections, the social relations are all too mixed for there to be a clear breakup of the you know division along the color line and it's also just very brutal and unfair and cruel to people and we see in many of the characters here this legacy of color just becomes something so debilitating to some of these characters that they can't get beyond so this burden of history is weighing on them and that, that's something we felt when we read the conjure woman 
but we feel it much more strongly. And I think in, in much more impactful ways in the wife of his youth. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to break this up into two episodes. And I think last time I said there's, there, I thought there was like 13 stories. And I guess I misremembered because there's only actually nine, nine stories in this collection. Um, I guess I was fusing together. Maybe I was maybe because I read the Conjure Woman and Wife and the Youth around the same time. So they kind of merged together. But yeah, there's nine stories in The Wife of His Youth. It's a little bit less than 200 pages, but I'm still going to break it up into two different episodes. So I'm going to look at the first four today, and then in the next episode, I'll look at the remaining five. So the four stories I'm going to take a look at today are The Wife of His Youth, which is the titular story, Her Virginia Mammy, The Sheriff's Children, and A Matter of Principle. And yeah, all these stories are about the tragedy of the color line in various ways. So I don't think this will be a very long episode, but I will kind of go through these stories and, and show you what's in them. And they're all really thematically tied together. So a lot of themes are going to overlap, but every one story in this collection is stellar. It's worth reading. It's They're fun to read. They're fascinating. And they're just wonderful snapshots into this generation. I talked about this in the previous episode on The Conjure Woman too. This generation that really has one foot in slavery and one foot in freedom. And they're trying to, you know, reconstruct. I'm using that term on purpose, I guess, but to reconstruct their lives in the aftermath of slavery and war and the breakdown of much of the Southern economy and Southern society and, and kind of find out who they are in freedom. And in doing so, they're constantly coming face to face with the past. It's not something they can get away from. When we looked at the Harlem Renaissance novels, which I did about a year ago on this podcast, you got the feeling that slavery was kind of a distant thing for, for many of these writers and for many of the characters in this novel. A few times it'd be like an older character who might have remembered slavery. Um, like, and not without our laughter, the set, it's centered on a young man who really didn't have a memory of slavery, but certainly suffered white supremacy. But, you know, older characters might have remembered slavery, but they were kind of seems old fashioned and, and kind of of the old times. Chestnut writing in a much earlier period of time, about, you know, about 20 years earlier, is is much more concerned about this transitional generation, this kind of freedom generation, as historian Ira Berlin calls them. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of fascinating things about this. And I wish I knew more about late 19th century Black writers. I only really know the three that you know I've come across in the Library of America: Chestnut, Du Bois, and you know, what, uh, Johnson. Now, of course, there's Booker T. Washington too. The Library of America hasn't, as far as I know, I don't think they have collected any of his writings yet. I'm, I'm sure that will come eventually. But I, so, I, and that his writings are going to be more political and formal and, and bureaucratic. He was um, less an artist than he was a a public intellectual, I suppose. But, you know, I'm sure we'll get a collection of his writing soon, but there's not that much. And I'm sure there's more that I'm not as well aware of, you know, having been a bit more familiar with the Harlem Renaissance writers. So reading Chestnut is really eye-opening and wonderful. And I, I really recommend going through these stories. And they're also memorable. These aren't stories you're going to forget very easily because they really do pack a punch. Okay, so in the wife of the youth, of his youth, the very first story we have in this collection, it's it's actually kind of the nicest tale in a sense. It's 
the one that we start out kind of feeling a bit gross as we read it and we, we kind of don't like this character we're introduced to mr Ryder is his name but by the end we we start to understand where he's coming from and and you know and he comes and he's willing to face his past and i, I think it's interesting chestnut begins the collection with this story because you have so many characters in these collections who are running from their past and their identity or not re- or not refusing to admit it even if they're facing it they, they don't want to talk about it and it's something kind of dirty and hidden and often it's a background of mixed them with sexuality and marriage and the whole fact that marriage was not legal in slavery and so that creates a lot of complications after slavery was was ended in the United States with the 13th Amendment and then of course you had uh, systematic rape and you had black women using sexuality as a survival strategy and then this leads to biracial people obviously biracial children who are born in slavery sometimes they're born in freedom but you get this class of, of people and this is something Chestnut's going to bear down on again and again in his writing it's something maybe it's almost obsessive with him and maybe that's maybe one way we could say there's a limit to, to what Chestnut can offer us because it does really give us this one theme again and again and it doesn't seem Chestnut's able to get branch out of that and even when he does it's always coming back to the color line again and again but anyways the wife of the youth wife of his youth it's about a slave who ran away and then after running away he received an education and after the war was able to reach an elite station and he gained membership in a group called the blue vein society and the blue vein society is a group of elite african-americans most of whom i pretty much it's implied all of them are biracial or you know have very light skin and that, that's where the name comes from is you can see their you can see their veins and you can see their blue veins and or the blue in their veins because their skin is lighter um, but they're also a very class conscious group and very focused on education and uplift and tend to look down on darker skinned black people southern blacks and poorer blacks so they're really creating this distinctive more middle class identity with within the post-war african-american um, you know sector of, of american society so here's what chestnut says about it Quote, Mr. Ryder might aptly be called the Dean of the Blue Veins. The original Blue Veins were a little society of colored persons organized in a central northern city shortly after the war. Its purpose was to establish and maintain correct social standards among a people whose social conditions presented almost unlimited room for improvement. By accident, combined perhaps with some natural affinity, the society consisted of individuals who were, generally speaking, more white than black. Some envious outsider made the suggestion that no one was eligible for membership who was not white enough to show Blue Veins. The suggestion was readily adopted by those who were not the favored few, and since the time of the society, and since that time, the society, though possessing a longer and more prestigious name, had been known far and wide as the Blue Vein Society and its members as Blue Veins. And then Chestnut goes on for a couple pages, actually talking about their agenda, their focus on uplift, their really their obsession with education, their obsession with class, and he ends the opening section here with a quote by our character writer i have no race prejudice he would say but we people of mixed blood are ground between the upper and nether millstone our fate lies between absorption by the white race and extinction in the black the one doesn't want us yet but may take us in time the other would welcome us but it would be for us a step backward with malice towards none with charity for all we must do our the best we can for ourselves and those who follow us self-preservation is the first law of nature 
End quote. Now, however you want to read this, it's certainly clear that they don't see themselves as kind of one with a single African-American identity in America. They really are dividing it. So the story basically boils down to Ryder throwing a party where he's going to get married. And or if he's introducing his fiance or something, but he is with someone he's going to marry. And he recognizes a woman at his party, a very dark skinned woman, incredibly dark. And, and she's older, too. She's quite a bit older than her. And then he goes and tells a story for to this audience of very elitist, very skin tone conscious black people. And the story he tells is how he was married. This person was married in slavery. He doesn't say it's him yet, but he says this person was married as a slave to an older woman. And because he was able to escape slavery, he had to abandon his wife. That marriage is, of course, not recognized in the law, and he's not bound to any kind of legal um, duty to this woman. But let's say someone like this is tracked down and found. You know, should this man then own her and claim her? And of course, these these audience presents themselves as very liberal and very open-minded and so they say of course you, this person should recognize this woman and that's at the moment where he does in fact acknowledge her now we don't know how the story goes on it's it's not likely they're going to get legally married but there's a lot tied up in this because this was something that happened a lot right Slip, families were broken up in slavery and people did often take extreme efforts to repair these families after after emancipation, right? Sometimes traveling miles, putting ads in newspapers, asking around, calling on institutions like the Freedmen's Bureau and other groups to really try to restore families. And I have no way of knowing how many were successful, you know, but probably a lot of failures in that too. So there's something kind of heartbreaking about, about this. And, and especially even if you do succeed, you're talking to pe- people who maybe haven't seen you in years, have moved on, and in this case, there's deeper divisions facing them, and that's this division of color that's entered into it in class because this, this quote-unquote wife of his youth is very low class and, and very dark-skinned and can't really fit into this blue-veined society well. But the story just ends with this acknowledgement of this woman as, as his f- former wife. And, you know, he doesn't deny it, and I, I think that's what's a bit maybe surprising because what you learn about this character in the blue vein society is you think he's going to deny her at, at the end but he doesn't he accepts her and that's that's kind of this is that makes it one of the more touching and i guess less tragic stories that, that we're facing in this this collection but i think one of the main points for me in this story is whatever these people have tried to do since slavery ended in creating identity and institutions and clubs and and a you know, class identity and even a racial identity, you know, history cuts across all that and history comes like, you know, like the tide and it's unstoppable. And that's some, a theme that, that Chestnut comes back to quite often in these tales. The second story in the collection is her Virginia Mammy. Um, in a way, it's kind of a similar story in the sense that it's looking at experiences that happened in slavery and then people of light skin coming to terms with those afterwards. Although this one's more ambiguous and a little more subtle. It's it's like in Wife of the Youth, everything is kind of laid out for you. There's not any subtlety 
in it at all. Her Virginia Mammy is, on the other hand, a very, very subtle tale. In fact, it's if you blink, you miss it. Although, you know, it's when you go back to it, it's, it's kind of obvious, but it is something that if you're careful, you you might miss it on the first read. Basically, it's about a woman uh, who's who for, you know sees herself as white um, and she's going to get married and she's with a man. So in this sense, it's, it parallels the wife of his youth almost point by point as you have this. The difference is that she sees herself as white and she's marrying a white man and there's really no awareness of a, of a black background. In fact, I think it's during the war that she kind of lost touch with her family. Many of her family members died or got dispersed. And so she's kind of been living on her own um, and everyone just took her as white. And she meets this uh, African-American woman who, you know, she recognizes and, and they recognize each other and she's her Virginia mammy, you know, the woman who raised her um, back in in her youth. And, and this woman gives the history of what happened to the family and all of this. But what you realize as you're reading it, and there's a few moments where, where Chestnut kind of gives you the very firm clues, like um, the man that this woman is with notices a similarity in features between this woman and this young woman that he's going to marry, this older woman, the young woman he's going to marry. And the realization that he comes to, but you never the, the, the woman in the story, the, the main protagonist in the story, never really seems to come to this realization herself. She just sees this as, you know, the the mammy who raised her um, when she was young. And anyways, yeah, so obviously this, this Virginia mammy is actually her mother. This is something the man that she's going to marry seems to notice and, and doesn't bring up. And so he, it's just, he's going to kind of overlook her, her racial background. In fact, this is very much the opposite of what happens in The House Behind the Cedars, where you have a very... It's different in the sense that the woman in... Rena in the house behind the cedars, you know, identifies as black but tries to pass as white. She goes to marry a white man, and then when it's revealed what his racial, what her, her racial background is, he breaks off the marriage. Here, the marriage seems to go on, and he commits to her at the end, not really forcing her to to face her racial heritage. So this one, in a sense, history comes up to them, and it's kind of tragic because you really feel for this older woman who. You know, it's finally founds her daughter after all these years and really can't have the kind of relationship with her that she would like to have. Or imagine she would like to have. She's also very cagey and she doesn't come out and say it, obviously, herself, but she's going to know it in her heart. So, yeah, the, the young woman's name is Clara and the older woman is Miss Harper. And she tells the story of how this family was broken up. It was like a a boat accident or something that broke them up and she she gives some of that history to us and then tells how the other people in the family died but i mean that's all the story really is it it ends very much like the the wife of his youth with a declaration but in the first case it's this is the wife of my youth and here all she can say is this is my mammy my dear virginia mammy she can't say this is my mom partially because maybe she doesn't know or she's not aware of this um but anyways, that, that's the story. So again, it's about the color line. It's about the legacy of slavery. And it's about how the color line comes to interrupt people's lives. And in the one case, it's it's kind of a bigger, more thing. It's, a, it's an issue out in the more open, in the open. And here it's a 
suppressed issue and not really spoken openly. And in a way, though, it's more tragic because this this family can't be really reunited because of the color line. That's going to be in the way of of that. And in a sense, Miss um, Harper knows she has to keep quiet about this because by announcing her relationship with Clara, she's condemning her to a, a life as a second class citizen in a society still burdened by by white supremacy. Next, we have The Sheriff's Children. The Sheriff's Children is a story about a lynching, and that's what we think we got, and it's about in the the third part of the story, I guess, when the kind of in the third act of the story, where we learn it's also a story about mixed heritages and, and biracial identities and, again, things that happen in slavery that carry on in the post-Civil War era in very tragic and, and horrible ways. Um, basically, uh, a man is is arrested. I don't have. I don't think he's ever really identified by name. He's always just called the Negro or the prisoner. Something like this. He's arrested for murder, and the sheriff is a man named Sheriff Campbell, and he's his job is to basically, you know, run the local law enforcement, of course. Now, the way these lynchings usually went, we get a pretty good description of it here, is where a Usually it would be a black man, but sometimes whites would also be lynched. But, you know, usually in this context, we're talking about the lynching of African-Americans. Someone would be arrested and then a mob would appear and demand the sheriff or the local law enforcement surrender the man to the, the, the prisoner to the mob. Usually they would do this or sometimes it'd be force or a battle or just feign protest before handing over the keys. Then the victim would be dragged out and, of course, killed extrajudicially and this would often be a community event and it happened very often throughout late 19th and the first half of 20th century America and it happened you know even past that from time to time so that's what we get a description of here so if you just want to read the story as a description of the the mechanics of how these lynchings happened it's actually fairly effective and it's closely matches historical writings on lynchings that I've that I've read the, what's different in this case is the sheriff puts up a bit of a fight towards the mob. He really tries to hold off the mob and he goes above and beyond it. And we're a bit surprised when we first hear that this is happening because we expect him to just hand him over or look the other way or sleep on the job while the mob takes him away. Um, the reason we find out that he's so invested in this, in protecting this prisoner's life is that he's the prisoner's father. And the really the heart of this story then is this conversation between the sheriff and this prisoner where they talk about basically debts and what's owed and family names and what has been passed on. And the resentment that this man feels over being abandoned by his father. And the sheriff, on the other hand, thinks, why well, gave you life? Right. And, you know, I tried to save your life just now. I saved you from the mob. So you owe me. Right. Or I don't owe you anything. I said it the wrong way. He says, you know, I don't really owe you anything. And his response is basically, you do owe me a lot more. And you've not only created me a life in this, you know, in a, in a situation where I'm doomed to be a, 
a pariah and exploited member of, of an underclass and a racial underclass at that. No, you abandoned me on, on top of that all, right? So I had no really guidance. And this is what he says to him once. And I think this almost works as a metaphor for the whole white South. And the sheriff only be, almost becomes a metaphor for the white South in this, with this idea that, you know, I, I've been, I'm your father to the two the black South. I'm your father. I've cared for you all these years. And now you're angry at, at me? Wait, what did I do to you? It's, it's, that's the attitude we get from the sheriff here. And, you know, and I think in this sense, it really works almost as a symbol for the entire white South. So here's what the sheriff says. There are schools, said the sheriff. You have been to school. He had noticed that the mulatto spoke more eloquently and used better language than most Bransom County people. And this is what he says. I've been to school and dreamed when I went that it would work some marvelous change in my condition. But what did I learn? I learned to feel that no degree of learning or wisdom will change the color of my skin and that I shall always wear what in my country is a badge of degradation. When I think about it seriously, I do not care particularly for such a life. It is the animal in me, not the man that flees to the gallows. I owe you nothing, he went on, and expect nothing of you. And it would be no more than justice if I should avenge upon you my mother's wrongs and my own. But still, I hate to shoot you. I've never taken a human life, for I do not kill the old captain. I did not kill the old captain. Will you promise to give no alarm and make no other attempt to capture me until morning if I do not shoot? And this this conversation, anyways, is really the, the, the moral core of of this of this story and this mutual resentment that's built up yet i think the most troubling part of the story is how the sheriff feels that he's done so much just by giving him a life and 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 bringing him into this world and that's kind of his obligation to them ended at that ended to him at that point anyways how this, the story quickly ends after this and basically the next day he goes to the jail unlocks the door. I think he's actually thinking about maybe helping him escape or something. And he's dead. The The prisoner is dead. And what he did is because he was wounded earlier, he just opened up the bandages and let himself bleed to death. So he basically kills himself. So that's the sheriff's children. All right. The final story I want to talk about in this episode is called The Matter of Principle. And we return to the Blue Vein Society. We, we meet a man named Cicero Clayton, who's very excited at the prospect of marriage between his daughter and a congressman. And I think what happens is um, the girl, I actually am forgetting her name, um, but she was at like a party and she danced with a bunch of people and she remembered some of them and had some recognition of some of them. And she remembered one, a couple were really dark skinned and one was really light skinned. And Cicero Clayton being of the, Blue Vein Society really wants his daughter to marry a light-skinned man. And then they get this, like, basically a proposal of marriage in the mail. It's like, I met your daughter at this party, and I want to marry her, and I'm a congressman. And Cicero Clayton, you know, investigates and asks his daughter what he can to find out about this person. And she's just like, well, I dance with so many people, I'm not sure which one he is. And so Clayton instead goes to meet the suitor in the train station, and sees a very dark-skinned man waiting for him. And he immediately realizes that this is this congressman and he was misidentified and my, my daughter got the wrong guy. So then he, he feigns an excuse. He basically says, I think that there's a disease in the family. You can't come to visit. 
and, you know, avoids meeting the congressman. And essentially ends any hope of marriage between him and his daughter. And so that with that potential marriage offer off the table, the story goes on to its conclusion in which they realize that that man he saw in the station was was not was not the congressman, right? He was like the congressman's aide or something. And he misidentified him and rejected him. So basically he rejected uh, his daughter marrying a congressperson because he thought he was too dark-skinned. And this is what he says. He says at one point, quote, if the congressman had turned out to be brown, even dark brown, with fairly good hair, thought though he might not have desired him as a son-in-law, yet he could have welcomed him as a guest. But even this softening of the blow was denied him, for the man in the waiting room was palpably aggressively black, with pronounced African features and woolly hair, without, with, without apparently a single drop of redeeming white blood. And this is all contrasted with the public proclamations of Cicero Clayton, who publicly talks about the brotherhood of man and this unity beyond races and going beyond the color line. And what we realize he really means by this is this idea that white, light skinned blacks will kind of morph and be accepted by white society. Right. And it will and that will, will draw a color line here rather than there, essentially. And now white supremacists, of course, drew the color line where they wanted. And this happened in law over the next over these decades that that Chestnut is writing these stories. I think, you know, by the first decade of the 20th century, you had Jim Crow laws established throughout. But it was still an ongoing process at the time these stories were being penned. But it's it's almost like you have different groups trying to put the color line in different places. And especially this class of the lighter skinned, you know, African-Americans were, were trying to put the color line in a place that was advantageous to them. And this often meant treating with disrespect and scorn other black people. And, I, and this is the tragedy that, that Chestnut keeps, keeps coming back to again and again in his stories. He really, again, he can't really get beyond it. It's, it's, it does seem to be a bit of a, an obsession, but it's, I think it's very powerful. And these four stories that I talked about today are all really wonderful reads. I, I think they're really worth getting at. They're, great examples of American writing and they're just wonderful on the, the racial question and the tragedy of the race line in, in the United States. So I'm just going to leave it at that and I'll have five more stories I'll talk about on the next episode. There'll be the, the remainders of the stories in this collection, the wife of his youth, and they're all just as good. Um, but so you can look forward to that. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments for me, please leave them below or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but then I'll be back with part two of The Wife of His Youth. <laughs> <laughs>